we start. Before I read, let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do want to pray tonight for big things, that by your Holy Spirit you presence yourself amongst us, that you, uh, our, our leader this evening in our thinking, in our uh, speaking, in our hearing, please would you speak through your word, the Bible, and because we're weak and just not even able to do what you tell us, please may we listen and after we listen, all these times call on you to change us so that we might think and love like Jesus. And we ask this for his glory. Amen. Amen. We're going to look at Acts chapter 6. It's on page 914. And just 15 verses, so it won't take long to read. Let me read all of it. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, they are people who kind of grew up in the Greek part of the Roman Empire, a complaint arose by the Hellenists against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Syrians, and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against his holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council 
saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Puzzled? Well, don't be. We'll be uh, looking at this a little bit more. But first, uh, our children are going to go out uh, for their little group and uh, we'll resume soon after they've gone. Great, well, the children have gone. And let's give ourselves to looking at this question. What makes us sure that there is a God and that we can have confidence in him? I imagine that some of us have been to church a few times before, but, okay, what makes us absolutely certain that there is a God and what makes us absolutely confident in this God? And I must suggest that one of the great reasons put in front of us in Acts chapter 6, is that God keeps going forward when you expect him to go back. So, in the previous chapter, Acts chapter 5, instead of the way we do the Bible here is we pick up one chapter, then we do the next chapter, then the next chapter, and so on. We did chapter 5 uh, for two weeks, and in the first week of chapter 5, we saw there were two people, and they were full of hypocrisy and deceit, and yet, despite that setback, uh, God goes forward and he deals with that and the next uh, last week rather we looked at the second part of Acts chapter 5 and we saw the whole Jewish senate of Israel telling the apostles you must not say another word about this person and yet they continue speaking and God has seen them through that obstacle and set back as well and this week we're going to see there are two setbacks coming at us in one chapter. And I call one the setback of distraction in the first seven verses and then the last bit, uh, the setback of attack. And the reason why it's good for us to keep learning these lessons is because they are never out of date. There are discouragements that come to the church all the time today and we need to be Christians who have absolute confidence that God's going to go forward, never stepping back, despite uh, the currents coming the, the other way. And we're going to see why we can have that confidence as we look at the two setbacks in chapter 6. First setback is that um, well, there's distraction, isn't there, in verses 1 to 7. You might just look at verses 1 to 7 and say, okay, the big lesson here we've got to learn is to get better organised. It's all about delegation. You see, you've got to get other people to get involved in what's going on so that there is a better distribution of food so everybody gets a bit. But my friends, this chapter is a whole lot bigger than better admin. It tells us three brilliant things about God. The first thing it tells us about God is that he loves. Now... In those days, if you were a widow and there was no welfare state, therefore you had nothing. But God, in the Bible, tells us in the Old Testament that he is the one who looks after the fatherless and the widow and he loves the stranger and he gives him food and clothing. God says, this is what I'm like. This is the true and living God. These are my passions and my concerns. Therefore... He started shaping his people to be just like him. And so Moses tells his people in Exodus chapter 22, verse 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. They therefore want to get it right. If God loves the widows, 
they're going to love the widow's due. This has got to be a non-negotiable. The work has to be done. That's why the apostles aren't telling the church, look, my friends, we've got far more bigger fish to fry. We've got far more important things to do than to wait on tables. We've got the word and prayer to do. So we're going to drop this. No. They say, this is really, really important. We've got to do this. This is God's priority. We can't let it slip. Therefore, choose seven good men. And to get it right, because it was so important, they chose seven men, and all their names are Greek names. So it's the Greek widows, not the Jewish widows. The Greek widows that uh, don't seem to get enough. Now they've got seven men, and they're all Greek men because they just want to get this right. No one is going to be left out. And so they give the task to those seven great men. And that shows you, doesn't it, that uh, when God creates a people, he creates a family, he creates a community, and he doesn't leave people struggling on their own. So the weak and the helpless don't just hear a message from afar saying, oh, God loves you. Do you realize that? They hear a message that says, come in and you will experience this love yourself. That is the beauty of the Christian gospel, that it mirrors the beauty of God in the Christian church. And that's what's going on here. And that's why it is so important for Christians to echo, to mirror that same love. It is very easy, isn't it, for us to be pious. And when we meet practical need to say, oh yes, uh, I'm very sorry to hear about this practical need of yours. I must pray for you. And what uh, James, the brother of Jesus, says in his letter, it's uh, right there, too much... uh, um, too, too, too big a quote uh, to, it's on your notes but um, I'll tell you the page number come with me to page uh, 1011 okay, 1011 and you see how James tells us that anybody who comes up with glib God talk hey, you know, I hope you get looked after I hope it works well for you I'll be praying for you that kind of pious nonsense the Christians are famous for. Uh, It is important, isn't it, to see that if we come out with that kind of Christianity, there's a big question mark whether we are Christians at all. James calls it dead faith. Let me read to you. James chapter 2, and uh, I'm going to read verses 14 to 17. Actually, it's on the next page, isn't it? Yeah, 1012. 1012, okay. Uh, pages, uh, uh, chapter 2 and verses 14 and 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed or lacking in daily food, think of our widows, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled um, without giving them the things needed for the body, What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. Yeah. 
Ever heard people just simply say, okay, I know you're, you're, you're struggling a bit, but uh, be blessed. Well, my friends, words are cheap, aren't they? And faith is dead if they are. Every Christian is charged up in God's love for others because God loves. The second thing we find out is that uh, he leads. Now, it is interesting isn't it, to ask the question, why is it that they've got to devote themselves to prayer and to the Word? Are they saying, look, these are the important things and we're not going to get our hands dirty doing the other stuff? No, because Jesus taught these apostles how to wash feet, so that's not the reason. The reason they're doing this is because actually it is the job of a leader, if I could put it like this, not to lead, but to constantly draw in God's leadership over his people. That's why prayer and word are the priorities. When it comes to uh, praying, well, it's really ultimately to ask God and to look to him to do what has to be done. It is just so, so important. You read the book of Acts and you see this in the very, very first verse of Acts chapter 1, verse 1, where Luke says, in my last book, in the Luke's Gospel, I told you what Jesus began to do and teach. In other words, this book is about Jesus continuing to do and teach. Here's the one in the driving seat. Here's the one who's doing the action. And prayer is really calling on God to do what needs to be done. It says, ultimately, God, you must do this. We can't. So every time I'm praying, I'm saying, God, uh, this is too much for me. You're in charge. You do it. That's what good prayer has in its heart. And if we don't pray, what we're really saying is, uh, God, look, uh, don't worry, leave this to me. I'm in charge. I can make it happen. And we need uh, uh, the church to be encouraged by those who have responsibility for it, to say, come on, we've got to, as a church, really get it clear that if there's anything going to happen, it is going to be God that's going to be making it happen. He'll be doing it. And devoting yourself to the word is another way of saying that this is bringing the church under God's leadership because it's through God's word that he directs his church. And we're not talking about words that someone plucks out of the air from time to time. We're talking about the word that is written down for us, the word in, in that case, the Old Testament, the word in scripture, what we might say today, the word in the Bible. That's how God leads his church today. Now, in those days it meant they were preaching the word, they were showing how the Old Testament was God's message to the New Testament church. And so very interesting, we won't be doing chapter 7 next week, we'll be doing it in two weeks, but when we get to chapter 7 you see that Stephen stands up and he gives a whole sermon about the Old Testament and why it's relevant to what's happening in that court of law. Bringing it up to life. And today's ministers devote ourselves to teaching the Old Testament and what 
the apostles taught about the Old Testament when they were writing the New Testament. Because the way God leads his church is through <coughs> Scripture. What you have if you don't have Scripture is somebody standing at the front leading you with their own words. And so without prayer you end up with a church where of course there will be lots of God talk because people will throw God language into a service but it won't be a church where God is leading. But here in this church you have God fully active. Just look at Stephen in verse 10. He is full of God. God takes him and leads him and speaks through him. And so you have um, in chapter 6 verse 10 uh, Stephen um, uh, he, they cannot withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking straight from God and they don't have an answer. So wonderfully God loves, he leads and then he advances. Now this is really wonderful in verse 7 where it says the word of God continued to increase, number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Now, if you've understood what the book of Acts is about at all, you know it's all about one verse. We're back in chapter 1. Jesus said that the, the news about him will go from Jerusalem and Judea, phase 1, to Samaria, phase 2, and then finally to the ends of the earth. And so the book of Acts ends finally in Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. Okay, It's gone to the ends of the earth. So the whole of Acts is a mapping out of just one verse, 1, 8, and these three stages. Now, in verse 7, you find that you've got to the end of phase 1. And so what's happened in Jerusalem is that uh, the word has spread widely. So if you look at chapter 5, verse 28 you see that uh, the Christians are accused of filling Jerusalem with their teaching. And here, in chapter 6, verse 7, uh, the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. So it's gone wide and it's gone deep because a number of the priests are being added to the faith. Now, let me tell you that when the hard nuts of the Jewish religion who opposed the Christians in chapters 4 and 5 and now they are following Jesus now you've got something really deep that has penetrated uh, the, 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 the hardest places to penetrate and the word of God has got there but also it's going outward as well because verse 7 is not just the end of phase 1 but it's the start-up of phase 2 and 3 as well, because one of the seven people appointed in verse 5, his name is Philip, he's the one who's going to take the gospel to the next stage, the Samaritans. And in the next chapter, in chapter 7, when Stephen makes his speech, listening to him, and we'll see later, deeply influenced by what Stephen said, is a man called Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul the Apostle who will take the gospel to the ends of the earth. 
So, wonderfully, phase one is done, but in the process, God is advancing into phase two and three as well. So, God advances in this wonderful opening chapter. The distraction hasn't got in the way and stopped him. Okay? So, you learn wonderfully about God that he loves, that he leads, that he advances. Now, what's the second problem? Attack, verses 8 to 16. Now, you look at Stephen. He is such a great guy, isn't he, in verse 8? Stephen, full of grace and power. He is such a good bloke. Now, why is it that they want to oppose him? Why do they want to attack him? Ah, it's actually something really important for us to look at. Most of it we'll look at next time. But it's certainly important because if Luke gives Stephen 68 verses of his book, well, then clearly this is something that he wants us to give attention to. And what you find out in this attack, as you look at the people involved in it, is that actually there's Stephen on the one hand, and then there are these Jews from what's called the Temple of the Freedmen. They're Jews that are just like him. They've come from the Greek bits of the Roman Empire. And the temple, the synagogue of the Freedmen, they're probably slaves once upon a time, and they've been freed. And they've come from all those different bits that you mentioned, all those different uh, names, Alexandria and so on. And they've all come to Jerusalem. Why? Because what they didn't have there, they get here, which is the full experience of their Jewish traditions and faith. So they've come, and they've come because this is where the temple is, this is where the law of Moses is, these are the central things that they cherish and value. They've come home just for this. And now they're hearing Stephen imply that they're not that necessary. They're angry because they say Stephen is against their holy place and their law. Now, these are serious charges. Because there's nothing more sacred to the Jews than their temple and their law. The temple is the place where you met God. The law is the place where you heard God. But actually, Stephen is only saying what Jesus said, that he is the fulfillment of the temple and the law. He's the fulfillment of the temple because he is the new meeting place with God. If anybody wants to meet with God, they've got to go to him, not to a building anymore. And he is the fulfillment of the law of Moses in the sense that Jesus kept the law of Moses fully. He's the only one who ever has. And what he does is if those come to him who can't keep the law and ask for his forgiveness, what he does on the cross is he transfers their guilt and shame and law-breaking onto him and he takes his perfect track record of righteousness and transfers it onto them. So now they've kept the whole law of Moses because Jesus has transferred his perfect law-keeping onto them. Or if you want to look it up, I think I've written it in notes, 2 Corinthians 5.21, I won't uh, ask you to look it up, but it says, He made him to be sin who knew no sins that you could become the righteousness of God. And uh, Jesus is therefore the fulfillment of the temple and the law of Moses. Now, Stephen didn't go around and saying, therefore you can go and dynamite your temple. 
the people who said that were false witnesses in verse 13. Jesus, Stephen did not speak against that. He just simply said that Jesus fulfilled these things. That's what Jesus said. And so it's a little bit like uh, the sun coming up in the morning on a bright summer's day. You don't need to take an axe and go and start chopping down lampposts. Because actually, as the sun comes up, the lights go out, don't they? You don't need to do anything about it, it just naturally happens. Because the lights are just unnecessary. And so what Stephen is saying is, look, when it comes to all those traditions and things that we've grown up with and valued as important, frankly, Jesus is the sun that's come up. You just don't need those things anymore. But they don't like the implications of that. And so that is huge hostility. Which is why verse 15 is really interesting. Gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. In other words, here is Stephen with this barrage of accusation and false attacks coming his way. He doesn't look like a man who is flustered and completely lost because he is a man who stands in the face of such uh, hostility and resistance. No, he looks like a man who's been in the presence of God, the face of an angel. And that is really fascinating because there was another man who had a change of face because he stood in the presence of God. Anyone want to remember who that man was? Moses. Moses. Now this is interesting, isn't it? Because if you look at verse 14, the immediate verse before, he's accused of being anti-Moses. And now you come into verse 15 and it's like God has given him the face of Moses. Look, he is not someone who is against Moses. He is just like Moses. He is stood in the presence of God just like an angel would do. God's answer to the false witnesses is not that he is anti-Moses, but he bears the look of Moses. And God endorses his uh, work and his ministry, not just in words that can't be um, uh, answered back in verse 10, but in the physical uh, resemblance that he has to the person that they say he's denying. Now, how does all that fit into the uh, world that we live in today? And I imagine it might just be helpful for us to think of three different groups of people. Let's say that you are someone in church who may be slightly distant from these things. Maybe you're listening to this tape on our website and you are not sure about Christianity and whether you want to be a Christian. Why would you want to make that step? And I think this chapter gives us this answer that in the end, uh, the most or one of the convincing proofs that there is a God that is real and that uh, we can have our confidence in him is that he is a God who goes not with uh, the flow and the favorable winds blowing in his direction but against them that is very interesting is all the other big ideologies of the world they advance because everything's 
going their way. So Islam advances because they have a mighty army and they just simply bulldoze everybody who stands in their way and that's how Muslim conversions took place. In the same way are the so-called religions of peace uh, and I would put communism in there too as well as Buddhism and Hinduism and so on. They grew because in the end the power of numbers ultimately brought about other people to essentially conform. And where uh, there's been some resistance, they have powerfully overcome, usually with violence. Certainly, uh, Buddhism is meant to be a very peaceful religion, but if you go to Sri Lanka and see what uh, Buddhism did to opponents there, you will discover that actually it's far from what is claimed. And so therefore there is this uh, great uh, need to have power and therefore to advance for more power. But when it comes to the real living God, he advances through weakness and discouragement and attack. When he has his prophet and there is a, 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 a sacrifice to show that he is real and all the other prophets are wrong, what happens? The prophet first puts cold water on the sacrifice and God lights the fire. And all the others who basically had their sacrifice and they said, now come on, there's got to be a God that answers us, are nowhere. But the living God works against every discouragement, every obstacle, every hurdle that you put in his way. He just clears and goes through. Now there has to be a great and living God to achieve that, do the maths and see that there is a God who loves, who leads and who advances. My friends, come into his kingdom. Be one of those that he loves. Be one of those that he leads and be part of his advance. And bring others into his kingdom uh, as you follow him. What about if you're someone who's knocked around churches for a long time? I imagine some of us have. And I hope it's easy to see how this passage tells us that we can really put a lot of stock in our traditions. It is really hard, isn't it, when you've grown up a certain way to rethink the way that you've always thought. And so therefore, if you've grown up in a traditional way in the Western Church, um, uh, in England and other places, the traditional forms of Christianity, they have a lot of traditions to go with that. You've got to have your communion services so often, you've got to dress a certain way, and all those boxes have got to be ticked. But equally, I think, if you come from an African culture, there are African traditions. And mainly, they are to do with how you might achieve your destiny and uh, the different things that you need to do to uh, um, accomplish that. And all these traditions, ultimately, you see, they need human leaders, don't they? And so therefore, uh, the Western traditions, they need their priests and their uh, clergy. And the African churches usually need their super pastors uh, to, in the end, get the crowds and uh, get things done. 
and it's usually focused on Sundays. But when God leads the church, it is interesting that in the end the traditions all become completely unnecessary because Jesus fills the screen. And when Jesus fills the screen, you know what the ultimate outcome of that is? Relationships. And so James, again going back to him, Jesus' brother, says religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. That isn't just Sunday business. That is week-long all the time. Relational growth and care. So my friends, it is just easy. I'm sure all of us have got this in our hearts to check. But let the Bible shine on what you've thought in the past. Let the sun come up on all of that to switch off the influence that we've perhaps grown up with. So we are led by God's word and not by man's traditions. And then lastly, if you are someone who is a real believer, uh, well, it is, again, uh, interesting to see what we can learn from this, particularly for our own church. And I want to suggest that one of the big lessons I've learned and picked up is this, that in the end we need to see that Jesus is absolutely the real, indisputable church leader where his people are gathered. The apostles in verse 4 say they want to devote themselves to the ministry of the word. Now that's interesting because in the original language, uh, the ministry of the word means the serving of the word. Okay, the word used is the word diakonos, um, the word used for a slave. So those who minister the word are really ultimately not leaders, they're servants. And it's the same word that's uh, used in verse 2 to describe serving tables. So they're not above themselves, they're saying, look, we don't want to be deaconing tables, we want to be deaconing the word, we want to be slaves of this because in the end this slavery will bring the church the leadership of God himself and so the word of ministry of word and prayer become the important things and if you want a church that is led by God then in the end you will be wanting to stop the people who should be serving the word to be serving at other things. You want to stop them doing that. And you want to say, come on, if you do that, we'll end up with the church with human words and human confidence. Please give yourself to prayer and the word. We want God to be running this place, not you. And you take the good work off their hands and you give it to good people instead. Wonderfully, in this church that happens and I'm completely incompetent in delegating but uh, there are people in this church who simply push me out the way and say you're not doing that we're going to do this you get back into prayer and the ministry of the word become a servant to us there please because the last thing we want you to do is to lead us we'd much prefer God to do that if you don't mind 
So it's a wonderful thing to keep a church going forward that we have uh, people wanting to see that that ministry is not removed either through distraction or through attack. And as we uh, <clears throat> uh, see what God tells us, leads us from his word in these things, so wonderfully, uh, the word of God will continue to increase and the number of disciples continue to multiply. And the word of God goes out and deep and changes lives. And only the leadership of God can achieve that in any church. Let's pray that he'll keep leading ours. Now I want to stop there and to suggest that uh, it may be good for us just uh, for a moment to take some time to pray this into ourselves. But let me finish by praying and perhaps bring our thoughts together. Our gracious King, please would you take our selfish lives and fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we prefer loving others to loving ourselves and to follow your lead rather than to lead ourselves and be confident of your advance rather than despairing at the setbacks of life. Cause us to follow Jesus, we pray, more than our traditions. And we ask this for our good and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Amen.